listening to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. The engine that powers urban development across every major metropolitan area in America is the real estate lender. Alongside architects, developers, and builders, lenders represent the critical fourth element in that mysterious process that turns a fallow plot of land into a living piece of the built environment. This life cycle is now suffering from the same affliction that has affected so many around the world. The coronavirus threatens to paralyze real estate development even as it was seeming to reach greater and greater heights just before the pandemic began. Nowhere is this seen in more stark, empirical terms than in the lending world. Jonathan Lee is a principal and managing director of George Smith Partners. He has seen firsthand the havoc that the pandemic has wreaked on the real estate market, so we sat down with him to better understand the circumstances that led up to the pandemic and to ask him what he portends for the future. Stay tuned. CitySpeak is sponsored by Batoni Architects. Based out of their new office in the West Adams neighborhood of Los Angeles, Batoni Architects assists their clients in developing high-value projects with specific expertise in new housing models, such as co-living, micro-units, and opportunity zone developments. To learn more, visit BatoniArchitects.com. Jonathan Lee, welcome to CitySpeak. Thank you. appreciate you having me, Greg. So I want to start by just having you set the stage for us. In very broad terms, what did your work look like before the coronavirus? So uh, our firm is Georgian Partners. We are a capital advisor uh, that structures debt and equity and real estate projects. We specialize in multifamily, hotels, office, retail, and industrial. And last year, we placed just over $3.5 billion in debt and equity mostly in the, in the Western U.S. So that's what we do on a day-to-day basis. I'm one of the principals and managing directors here at the firm. And we had, a, we had a great year. We had a very robust year, but that was last year. And then the first month and month and a half of this year, we're looking pretty good. But I was, I was looking at my notes and I think we had 156 loans in application and out to market as a firm. But that number dropped, you know, beginning of March down to less than 20. As a firm, I think we feel really confident that a lot of those deals are going to come back in Q3, Q4, they might look a little different and probably will make up you know, the difference in 2021 and pick up even more new deals. But that just kind of gives you a, a, an insight into how much the volume you know, kind of just stopped on a dime. And of course, the, the elephant in the room here is the reason for all of that is the coronavirus, obviously. Would you say that what you're seeing specifically with your firm, is that something that you would say is pretty representative of the whole industry? Yeah, I think the, the best way to describe our shop is that we are a fiduciary to our, our clients and we go out and find them capital. So what we do is we take their project, their specific ask, and we go to market and we shop it against different lenders. We're not direct lenders, but what we do is we we financially structure the deal that works best for them and, and then close it. All of the lenders in that space that we work with, be it CMBS, life insurance companies, Fannie Freddie, we were we were all in this together and we were all dramatically affected by it. So at some point, during the crisis, lending really stopped. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the circumstances that led up to that and why why we saw that in such a sudden fashion? So when people started to stop traveling, you know, there was this reluctance then to look at some asset classes like hotel and retail and, and lenders were getting a little cautious on it. But unlike the last time when there was a recession, it sped up very, very quickly. And to give you you know, an idea about that. CMBS, which is commercial mortgage-backed securities, last year, there were $97 billion 
and new loans put out. Uh, it went from February being a pretty robust market to zero for the last 60 days. So you've taken almost $100 billion out of the market right there. Life insurance companies slow down their lending. Um, they back down leverage. Some banks who have very full, robust commercial real estate lending groups put pause in all their loans, took their loan officers from the real estate group and put them into the SBA group so they could, uh, they could process PPP loans just to get that liquidity into the system for small businesses. And then Fannie and Freddie were looking at new apartment transactions and saying to themselves, you know, where are you know, tenants going to be? Are they going to be able to pay rent? So they started to structure in reserves in order to you know, cover shortfalls and, and collections. So that was all the bad news. And then at the end of that, equity groups are saying, until you guys can figure out the debt, we're, we're just going to sit tight and see how this plays out. So that's all the bad news. That's all the stuff we saw before Memorial Day. Afterwards, you know, we're seeing Fannie and Freddie relax some of those restrictions. Uh, bridge lenders are starting to come back into the market. CMBS is starting to price new deals. So that will start to come online. And then bridge deals that we were looking at pricing between 7 and 8% are now down to LIBOR 450. And LIBOR is at less than 50 basis points. So we're seeing these green shoots in real estate lending start to pop up, which gives me a lot of confidence going into Q3, Q4, and then into 2021 that we're going to be fine coming out of this. But in the short term, there was some pain. There was this moment where we got concussed, if you will, from the coronavirus shock that hit us. But I think now people are starting to find their footing and, and find where they want to be with loans. So let's kind of take a dive into some of the specific asset classes that you mentioned your your firm focuses on. Let's just start with office. And so one thing that comes to mind for us is that the sharp increase that we've seen in companies allowing their employees to work from home has really been a defining feature of the coronavirus. And you know, time will tell whether that will be a momentary trend or actually represent a lasting paradigm shift even well after the pandemic. In your line of work, that has some serious ramifications for, for office lending. And whether the office vacancies we're seeing now will end or continue is something I'm sure you're actively thinking about and lenders are actively thinking about. Um, how are lenders grappling with office underwriting as that use is increasingly uncertain and remote work will potentially continue to grow? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. I think we're all grappling with it. Uh, as you can see, I, I'm in my office right now, which is a bit different because we're, we're supposed to be at home right now. But I've had two Zoom calls during the coronavirus and uh, my daughter's come into the room wrapped in a blanket and then dropped her blanket, only wearing her underwear. She's four years old and started dancing and saying, naked girl, naked girl, naked girl. And it's very uncomfortable. Uh, and, and everyone laughs. and They're very good natured about it. But the reality is like working at home is not sustainable if you have a seven and four year old and you need to, you know, get things done really, especially when they're out of school. So this is, this has been different. And then as we're opening up our office again, we're dealing with stuff and our building's dealing with it candidly. Um, a lot of folks are scared to come into the office and, and it's understandable. Um, do you use the elevator? How many people are in the elevator? Do you have to switch to touchless faucets in the bathrooms? Can we go to the kitchen to get coffee? There's, there's a lot of short-term things that we've got to figure out. Um, and I think modern offices, you know, you saw this, like uh, they want to maximize space by doing shared space, right? And, and having a, a single table with a bunch of people working on it. Obviously, that's going to change. Um, if I'm an office furniture company, I, 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 I love the idea that everything's going to have to get redone because that's more sales for me. Um, but I think in some respects, it's, it's a little too early. Um, what I know is it takes 
according to some experts, 60 to 90 days to create a new habit. And, and this virus just gave us that. If I'm an employer, I now trust that my teams can use Slack. They can use Trello, Zoom, we're texting, we're emailing. Do I need as large a footprint for my office as I did before? I think that's something that, that people are working through. And secondly, I, I live in LA, but this is true of a lot of cities. Traffic sucks. If I can save two hours of my day commuting to and from the house or to, to meetings, I, I just, I did the math. I get 20 plus days of my life back per year. Wow. So now I'm definitely thinking about how I use my office differently, right? And then let's take it a step further. Uh, we saw the stock market. It obviously was at an all-time high in February. It came crashing down in March. Now it's on the way to recovery. A, a lot of companies are going to take losses in the second quarter this year and maybe the third quarter and say, look at the coronavirus. But at some point, they're going to have to start making profits again. And what do you look at? Well, you look at cutting staff maybe, but you look at your fixed costs. One of your fixed costs could be office. So do I need the space that I did before? Am I going to go more online than I did before? Do I trust my employees to work more at home than I did before? And thereby cutting my, my costs. I think it's a very real thing. And I think what could come out of this, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't have a crystal ball, but what could come out of this is um, people start to transition to suburban office closer to their homes. Uh, they need to get out of their house. Maybe they don't have a home office set up at home, but maybe they don't need to be in a core city or core urban environment like downtown or Century City. Or maybe they move you know, wholesale into a, a second tier MSA. Maybe they move to a city you and I don't think about regularly because they don't have a need to, to be in, in that core you know, top 10 MSA on a daily basis. So I actually think uh, it's a big question. Um, it's one that hasn't been able to be answered yet. Uh, but as a lender, I look at that and I think you can probably get comfortable with the NOI on an office building today, probably build in more reserves for TIs and, and leasing commissions in the future because there'll be turnover in that space. Uh, I don't see office going away, but it, as you as you rightly pointed out, it, it will change. That actually leads us pretty logically and beautifully into the next asset class that uh, you mentioned at the outset, namely multifamily. Um, and one thing we're seeing uh, increasingly especially as a result of the tragedy that's been ongoing in New York, is that there is an increasing, uh, at best, wariness, at worst, you know, fear towards density um, and in cities. And one asset class that I would think would be potentially really impacted by that changing norm is multifamily. So how are you thinking about multifamily during this crisis and particularly as we emerge out of it? That's a great question, too. Um... You know, outside of industrial, I think multifamily is still the most stable. Um, I think we're seeing some immediate, you know, shocks to the system in multifamily. Um, namely, there was a big push uh, in the last two years where a lot of people were building Class A housing, Class A multifamily housing, and then there was sort of the counter you know, argument: well, we should really focus on B and C workforce housing, and uh, that seemed the safer bet because there was more people in that space. Turns out that those BNC workforce housing type deals have the most people living paycheck to paycheck um, that have been laid off in this coronavirus. So the the issue all of a sudden that sort of became the soft underbelly, and 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 people are seeing that ramification. So I think that there's a new focus on multifamily and the asset classes. The defaults that we've seen have been mostly in the BNC range, not in the Class A range. But you bring up a really good point. If you're in New York or even some places like Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, 
you look at this and you're cooped up in this class A apartment building and you've got a gym and a pool that you're supposed to be able to use, but oh, guess what? They closed it, right? So now you're looking and saying to yourself, well, maybe I want to be uh, you know, in a single family home rental, right? And get out of the city and, and move. And that kind of goes back to my earlier point. I, I do see a, a demographic shift coming out of this. I think people will start to move away from cities. And developers are onto this. I think in the last year or two, we've seen a lot of for-rent uh, for home developments in places like Phoenix and outside of San Francisco, where they're building two, 300 homes, but they're for rent. They're not necessarily for sale. So I think those will become an attractive asset class. So related to the multifamily discussion, um, I'm hoping you can help us understand the really complex and entangled relationship that the coronavirus has laid bare between tenants and landlords and lenders. Uh, first, we saw with tenants that the government, whether it's the federal, state, or local government, uh, had told landlords that they can't evict. So as a consequence of that, landlords subsequently uh, were struggling to make payments to lenders. So the government in turn told lenders that they need to forbear. It seems to me that somewhere in that chain, something's got to give. How do you think that problem gets resolved now and, and looking in the future? That's a loaded question. And there's, there's a lot of stakeholders in that equation. Um, but starting with something you just said at the end there, that uh, you know, they're being told to forbear. That's true. Forbearance is basically you know, a deferment of your monthly mortgage payment until you pay off the loan. Um, but you have to look at different asset classes, industrial hotels, retail office, and multifamily. You know, the lenders that had hotels were very quick to come to the table and say, yeah, we're, we're, we're willing to forbear. Um, that has not been the case in the multifamily space. And I think for good reason. For one, the PPP program got passed and unemployment benefits are there for people that were laid off. So in theory, the money should be there for them to be able to pay rent, right? So lenders know this and they're putting pressure on the landlords to, to collect, right? But I think, I think on a very granular level, I understand what the government's doing. I, I have a, a personal connection to the Union Rescue Mission and coming out of the crisis in 2010, there were 10, 11,000 homeless here in Los Angeles, right? That number grew to 54,000, right? In probably the greatest economic run-up we've ever had in our country. And we looked at that, we studied it, and we said, why is this happening? And, and one of the main reasons was the rising cost of living in the city. And so if you, if you can't afford the rental increase, you might lose your apartment. You might have to, you know, crowd surf or, or couch surf for a while with your friend's place. You live in your car. All of a sudden you're late to work. You lose your job. Now what? That was one of the big reasons we had the homelessness issue or have it. Now with unemployment, people are losing their savings. They're living paycheck to paycheck. So I think there's real compassion in, in, in what the government is saying to people like, yeah, we, we want you to be able to exist. On the flip side, not all real estate is owned by large REIT and equity shops. I think something like 60% of the rental stock in LA is owned by individuals, right? These are people who filter wealth through businesses or investments, retirement accounts and whatnot. And now the city is telling these people who received unemployment and PPP money, don't pay rent, but the mortgage is still due. And the lenders know that there's money in the system. So they're not forbearing, at least right now. Now the owner's chewing up his reserve money he's going to use for, for new maintenance, for you know, uh, a new roof, whatever it is to make that mortgage payment. And so there's this tension on the system. And, and, and I think the best way to say it is, you know, trust is, is the coin of the realm. And when trust breaks down, 
as a landlord, I'm getting pressure from the government. I'm getting pressure from my tenants. You start to rethink the relationship that you're in. Mm -hmm. And do I want to make that relationship in this city? Or do I want to go to another city where they're more friendly towards me? Or do I want to invest in a different asset class? And I think those are ramifications that government's not really fully thinking through, despite their best efforts to bring compassion into the space, which is understandable. In in that vein, I'd love to have you opine on the various levels of our government and their respective interventions. You know, you have on the one hand uh, the federal government at the highest level. You have the state government. You have the local government, obviously. And you know, one of the recurring themes of this podcast is uh, the relationship between what is going on on a national, sometimes even international level, and what we see visibly on a local and even hyper-local at times level from the perspective of our cities and towns. You know, in many ways, this pandemic has been so ubiquitous that this connection has never been really clearer. And I think an area in which this holds especially true is in real estate lending in so far as the actions that were taken at the highest echelons of our government, as in the Fed, will have immediate and lasting effects on how cities and towns continue to recover after this crisis. So when mm -hmm. you compare, let's as a point of comparison, when you compare to, say, the global financial crisis in 08, how yep. would you eva evaluate the Fed's response to the pandemic? And how do you think we'll be able to see the fruits of that effort actually on the ground? Well, to start with, I mean, going to the last part of your question uh, about the global crisis in 2008 versus today, it, it's totally different. Um, in 2008, you had bond buyers question some securitizations. Um, the Fed was slow to respond, and we had the great financial crisis. Um, when the Fed finally acted, they basically dumped a lot of liquidity into the system. But at that point, the horse was sort of out of the barn. It took them months to react. And by the time it was over, you know, some banks went away and some banks got bigger. And that was basically the end of it because they poured all of that money into the top of the system and let it flow through uh, down to the bottom. This time is different in that they saw exactly what the problem was at the beginning, but it wasn't a liquidity problem. It wasn't a bank problem at the top. It was a liquidity issue at the bottom. And so they put a P, the PPP program together and they put out $350 billion in 14 days, which to put that in perspective, and that all went to small businesses, to put that in perspective, that's the same amount of money that the SBA program put out in 14 years. So in 14 days, they matched what they did in 14 years. That's a phenomenal testimony to our federal government and its ability to use resources like banks to put money into the system. Is unemployment up? Yes. But if you remember back to March, there were people talking, I mean, we, we had to queue up to go to Vons, right? There was a run on toilet paper, right? And then it really got scary when they started talking about, you know, people lining up for, for you know, gun sales in Burbank and, and other cities, you know, like, all of a sudden, you start to feel a little different about where you live. And so what I think the money that the government put into the program did to sort of stabilize small businesses and to shore up unemployment programs for people to have money to pay their rent uh, was it brought peace to the valley. It, it gave us a time to sort of take in this shock to their system and to see how we best move forward. Now, we we're a few months into this. And to your other question about the federal versus the state versus you know, the local governance, um, I think we're getting to see democracy up close. And I think we're getting to see uh, what a federal system really looks like because we all forgot about it since junior year of high school civics class, right? 
we are looking at this and saying, man, the state really does have some controls over what they do. And the counties also have controls over what they can do. And the Fed just can't mandate on high. And some people might look at China and say, well, they handled it better, right? Because they could do this holistic all-in approach at one time. And we don't have that ability. Candidly, I'd still take our system over theirs, but we're getting that friction and that and the conversation, the viewpoints that people are bringing to the table in this conversation is the friction that makes a democracy at its best. So uh, long term, I'm an optimist. I, I think we will pull out of this. Um, it's going to look different for different people, but I, I am I am very excited about what the opportunity brings for people coming out of this. I'd just like to conclude sort of on a personal note that you touched on. You, you're pretty involved civically in several nonprofits and including the union rescue mission that you had mentioned earlier. What are conversations in the nonprofit world like right now? And specifically, how would you, I guess, compare those conversations to the tone that you're seeing in your line of work? Is there, you're an optimist, it sounds like, but how are people feeling in in the different realms in which you've worked? You know, I think you know, for as much fear as this has brought about in our world and, and how we see things, I think what has happened to us is we get sort of lulled into a routine in life, right? And and that routine brings us this sense of security that life will just keep moving on the same way it has. And until there's a disruption to that routine, you don't see all the possibilities that lie outside of that. And especially as a you know, as it relates to the nonprofit world, we had a big gala that we were supposed to put on to raise money for the homelessness, and it got postponed right? And we pivoted, amazingly, we were able to pivot to a television telethon. We ended up raising four times the amount of money we would have at the gala at a fraction of the cost. And the other thing is, so you have to think about things differently. And the, the ability through webinars and through Zoom and the acceptance of that of our culture to reach people in a different way is, is an amazing opportunity that's come out of this. People are much more willing to accept this new uh, paradigm and medium of communication than they were before, right? As it relates specifically to nonprofits, I'm blown away. I'm so excited about our country because when people are in need in our country and they see the need, giving goes up. We've seen it, other nonprofits that we work with and and, in our concert with, they're seeing giving go up. And that's amazing to me because the stock market dropped by 25, 30%, right? People that have money are still seeing the need and they're stepping up. So again, I, I, I don't know how long that runs. If this crisis were to go on for one year, two years, three years, I don't know how much people have in their capacity to give. But in the short term, when there was a challenge, people st- stood up in, in remarkable ways. So I'm very excited about where we're at. Jonathan Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Thanks for tuning in to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with music and sound production by Greg Gordon-Smith and musicology and verification of originality by Muse Inspection. Tune in again for our next episode.